welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual in a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong, music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today for a second appearance is historian Robert Allen Goldberg from Utah, here to discuss his book, Enemies Within, The Culture of Conspiracy in Modern America. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Ari. How are you? Doing real well so far. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming back. I appreciate that. I know you're- My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, it's, it's a busy year, a lot going on. So for listeners, Goldberg is an historian at the University of Utah and the author of several books, including Hooded Empire, the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado, which we discussed previously on this show. Although Enemies Within came out in 2001, it sheds a lot of light on events of our day with the rise of QAnon and other unfounded conspiracy theories. Goldberg has continued to, re to research this topic, conspiracy imaging as he calls it, or as I would call it, conspiracy mongering. So I wanted to talk about his book and more recent events, which he has also researched and spoken about elsewhere. So your book came out, I wanna start with a timing question because your book came out in 2001, which is really interesting timing for a book about conspiracy theories. Because of course, that's also the year of the 9-11 terrorist attacks with the horrific loss of life which was a real conspiracy. These people conspired to ram jet built jets into buildings. And at the same time, it gave rise to many unfounded conspiracy theories. So I assume if you wrote your book today, you would have a chapter on 9-11. Without getting into too much detail on that, because we could go down a rabbit hole on that alone, how would you compare the level of conspiracy imaging surrounding 9-11 with say the assassination of JFK previously, oh, which you do cover in your book? Yeah, uh, first of all, my book did come out a month before 9-11, and I have written on 9-11 conspiracy theories as well. Uh, I think I look at 9-11 conspiracy theories as part of the, the old type of conspiracy telling that I basically talk about in my book. In 20th century, when you talked about conspiracy theories, you had to prove your case. And that meant that you had to assemble the facts, assemble the evidence, because you were trying to persuade and convince people of your belief. And so conspiracy theorists would write these lengthy books, uh, long articles, long documentaries, uh, proving the point, detail by detail, connecting the dots, because the devil was in the details. And I look at the 9-11 conspiracy theories very much in that vein, because there was an attempt to do the exact same thing talk about the, the melting uh, point of, of steel, uh, what airplanes did what, what buildings were uh, touched and on and on. And so you have the same type of mode of thinking in regard to conspiracy making, which is very different than we have conspiracy making today. So that's interesting. It's almost like the JFK business and the 9-11 false flag business is somewhat more respectable than <laughs> some modern conspiracies in the sense that they at least make a pretense of gathering evidence. Well, I, 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 respectable, I wouldn't have come up with that word. It's a good word. Uh, the, the, the task was different. Let me say that uh, in a sense that the conspiracy theorists of the old, of the old uh, time conspiracy theorists felt that they were Paul Revere's riding to the rescue of America. And that meant that you had to convince the Americans, American people that they were right. What we have now is, if you will, conspiracy theories without the theory, and you have basically tweets that announce conspiracies. But my argument about that, and we, I hope we go into this in more detail, my argument about that is 
some of the conspiracy theories that are alluded to today are so well known that they become normalized in regard to how Americans understand that they become legitimized. So ideas of uh, global uh, cabals, of uh, insiders, of new world order, you can go back to the communist conspiracy thoughts in the 1950s, the John Birch Society talking about the, the insiders controlling capitalism and communism, the new world order ideas of the militia movements in the, in the uh, 1990s. And this is all now basically part of the, the script so if you can dog whistle that, say New World Order, there's already a, a series of images that it connotes. And I want to add one other piece of this, because I, I understand we'll be talking about QAnon. There's a lot of uh, Christian apocalyptic thinking also involved in this, which is, again, something very familiar to a great many people. So you don't have to go through the theory. You don't have to connect the dots. The, uh, the telling is in the repetition, as opposed to the telling in the detail. Okay. Well, I want to plant a thought here, though, which we can bring up later, maybe. So, it, so that's really interesting. So we've sort, in a sense, evolved from these extremely intricate, multi-thousand-page documents outlining the conspiracy to now just pointing back at what those conspiracies are and assuming that everybody already has that common sense of framework, especially as you talk in your book. There's been so much media about this, such as X-Files. All, I mean, even right now, I'm watching The Boys on Amazon. Mm -hmm. which is, of course, about this giant international conspiracy, the, the bots who create these superheroes to take over the, the world and so on. Um, so it's just everywhere. But I wonder if maybe that is also a key to the solution, because if, if it's so well known that every, everybody just has a common framework, then it's also easier to talk about it as a common set of tendencies and dispositions and fallacies. And so maybe it's also easier to just say, to, to throw it, to take out the trash all at once, right? <laughs> Instead of having to do, go detail by detail. Well, actually, the right. materials in this particular room of this building in, in the Twin yeah. Towers, you know, what, you know what I'm saying? No, so I think it's a good point because if, when we look at the Kennedy assassination or 9-11, there are many books, as you know, written about the Kennedy assassination, many articles and pieces written about 9-11 disproving all of the points raised or videos disproving these points. So I think that's a really good point. Uh, the concern is who is able to be able to stand up and speak against these conspiracy theories? Who is able to legitimize another train of thought that asks not necessarily about the evidence, but what kind of mode of thinking is going on? And the real problem is when you have the conspirator in chief uh, uh, sitting in the White House in the Oval Office, you have a lot of legitimacy just tied to the fact that the president spouts these conspiracy theories, or should I say retweets and tweets these conspiracy theories. So you have a real issue of who is legitimate and not legitimate. Who are the gatekeepers in American society today? And I think that's one of the real concerns that we've lost our trust in the gatekeepers, the past gatekeepers of the 20th century. Okay. Well, we'll get into more of that later on. I want to go back kind of to the basics now and try to nail down what a conspiracy theory means. Because as you also discuss in your book, obviously there are real conspiracy theories. People really do conspire to commit crimes and do other bad things. So to me, the key is evidence. Is there evidence that some particular group actually committed a conspiracy and goods well, that we can support? Or is the conspiracy theory based on wild speculation, shoddy evidence, poor logic. So yeah, what do you have to say about that distinction? I, I, I'm just, I bridle at the word evidence, because if you look at QAnon, 
there is no evidence whatsoever. There are crumbs and there are posts that allude to something, but there's no evidence to that. If you look at the Roswell incident in regard to alien, uh, an alien craft crashing uh, near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, there's no evidence to support that either. And then you wide read these the various books and the accounts, whether they're uh, pseudo documentaries or the books, and you see that the evidence changes over time, depending on who you're talking to. And even when you're talking to the same person, his or her evidence has shifted as you go through this. So I'm not sure evidence is the key here because what conspiracy theories are known for is starting from a premise of conspiracy and then coming up with the conspiracy. So if you're looking for a conspiracy, odds are you're gonna find a conspiracy. You know, add to that, you, there's so much magical thinking involved where you, uh, the idea is you have these powerful forces in the, in the society, diabolical, treacherous, who are all-knowing, all-powerful, can do and, and bend history to their will, if you, if you, if you like to say it that way. Uh, but that basically is beyond the evidence. What these conspiracy theories are, are loose collections of some facts that are somehow brought together to make a meaningful picture or a consistent or cohesive picture. But the, the facts are often made up. The documentation is poor and... Uh, as a result, you get a wonderful detective story, but I'm not sure what beyond the detective story exists. Okay, so you're wanting to have a very a strong idea of what evidence means, like evidence is actually going to your point. Whereas well, conspiracy thinking, what it's purported evidence, but it's not actually evidence. It's just sort of a loose collection of random factoids and, and made up stuff, made up, made up factoids. But and, so- and, and the reliance on coincidence, if somebody is in a town same time an event occurs, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is connected to the event. But when you read conspiracy theories, uh, it's the coincidence, the collusion is so apparent because of the proximity. And historians cannot draw those kind of arguments. And I don't think anybody else can draw those kind of arguments. Okay. So, but, so like Pizzagate, for instance, which was <laughs> sort of bound up with the whole, I don't know the timeline exactly, but it's part of the same sequence of QAnon October, arguments. October uh, 2016 is Pizzagate. So, so this, this fellow who went to this restaurant with his right. rifle, he didn't have any actual evidence that there was some kind of sex child conspiracy ring in the basement, but he thought he had reason to do that. Like he actually thought in his head that he, there was something bad going on and he was going to go stop it. Right. What happened? So he was delusional and he was, you know, you know, you can you see what you want to see and disregard the rest. I don't. I think uh, Paul Simon said that. Uh, but it's the it's the idea that you could look at a sentence that talks about pizza, and come up with the idea that pizza really means child, and this is a child sex ring which Hillary Clinton and John Podesta are part of, and they're coming out of the Comet Restaurant in Washington D.C. I don't know if you've been to the Comet. But the Comet is a typical pizzeria, one long room with tables that seat families, no basement, no, there's a kitchen, there's a closet. And this guy believed that in the basement because he had read on Facebook, he had read on Twitter, he had read in a variety of these sources that nefarious things were going on. Okay. That was enough for him. The fact that, and here's the other piece, when you, naming names and naming places gives an authenticity to the story. It adds the details, again, the devil is in the details. So here you're being told it's happening in this place at this time on this street. 
Okay, get your pistol, get your rifle, because you're going to end the, this, this nefarious practice. Well, that goes to another point, which is that this can be actually truly dangerous. I mean, we're lucky that somebody didn't die in that particular incident. Oh, and absolutely. And you know, when you, in my book, I talk about the American Revolution being seen as a, a fight against the conspiracy. If you look at the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, it talks about a, di a diabolical design of events that the British were seeking in a conspiracy to take away American rights. We know that led to a revolution. Okay, so conspiracies, whether you're for them or against them, or revolution you're for against them, are dangerous items, especially when there's actually no evidence to support these conspiracies. Well, I don't know if you've read about this other story in Colorado, but there was a QAnon group in Colorado that helped a woman kidnap a child I it was her own that. child. And so it was, a, it was basically a custody dispute. And I don't know the details offhand. But, you know, kidnapping a child can be very dangerous. So it's kind of ironic that a lot of these conspiracy theorists are creating the very danger that they're warning against, which is, in this case, putting child, children in danger. And that's such a good point. And, you know, I think one of the issues to this, and I'm, I'm going to call this vigilante justice, uh, but one of the issues here is the belief that American institutions are not doing their job, that we've lost faith and we've lost trust in the ability of institutions to govern our society. And therefore, you have to take the law into your own hands or your will or your needs become greater than the needs of the community. And I think that is the real uh, tinder of, of conspiracy theories, which is they can burn down a society by destroying trust and belief in our institutions. And I think that's fundamental here. But I wanted to, I don't want to get too much into the revolution, but I did want to ask a follow-up question about that. How much of this, somebody can say the same words in sort of a hyperbolic way, like referring to a diabolical plot. Mm -hmm. Well, I might refer to a diabolical plot and I'm an atheist, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just sort of like saying, well, there's something bad happening in the background. I'm not literally saying Satan is up there with his pitchfork, you know, yeah. like prodding people along. And so, and even today, even on both, in both parties, we have people often alluding to religion for, to, make a, to make a rhetorical point. And I think it's tying into these deep traditions, but they don't they're not necessarily saying, they're not necessarily being literalist in what they're saying. Well, so, I'll, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just had a question. So how, how much of what we might think of is conspiracy thinking is actually just sort of being hyperbolic or using rhetorical flourishes? Well, I, I think there's, we, I talk about conspiracy entrepreneurs, and those are people who uh, sell conspiracy theories. They have their, their fingers on the pulse of the American public. They know what the American public likes, and whether they're in motion pictures or in books uh, or in a variety of uh, visual aids, uh, they're seeking to create a product that is consumable. And that leads to rhetorical flourishes. It leads to what I called earlier the detective story. But here's, here's my issue with this, which is if you're talking about people who are your opponents, they're not simply wrong. They're not simply misguided. The idea is that these people are traitors, that these people have betrayed the country, or that these people are corrupt whether because they are engaged in the child pornography or they're engaged in a lucre or whatever it is. But the idea is that how do you deal with people who are corrupt? How do you deal with people who are subversives? Uh, 
And if our democracy is based on negotiation and compromise, how do you compromise with subversives who are seeking to tear the country down? So while I agree with you, the rhetoric, rhetoric is inflamed and it is hyperbolic, uh, I think it is, is basically, it's like an acid eating away at this society. Okay. So I wanted to go back to, as a point of contrast, to try to just get the basics as to what is a conspiracy. I came up with a list of real conspiracies, at least what I consider real conspiracies, which, and you mentioned many of these in your book. And then just to kind of contrast an actual fact-based conspiracy with these made-up wild strains of thought conspiracies. So the assassination of Lincoln, that was, there was a real conspiracy to kill Lincoln. Though there was also a lot of <laughs> bogus conspiracies on top of that, but there was a real, real conspiracy there. Many acts of terrorism by the KKK and other racist groups, especially after the Civil War into the early 1900s. Later on, Soviet spying within the US really did happen. Watergate was a conspiracy. CIA actions in Central South America, parts of Asia were real conspiracies. Mm -hmm. The US government committing or perpetrating certain experiments at Tuskegee and elsewhere. Contragate under Ronald Reagan. The Clinton sex scandal, I guess we could count that as a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. The hiding of certain data by cigarette manufacturers. The Catholic Church hiding certain instances of child abuse, which of course was the subject of a movie a couple of years ago. Right. About a newspaper uncovering that. Boston, right. Um, the torture by U.S. operatives in the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. NSA domestic surveillance um, with Snowden revealing much of that. And then more recently, and even continuing to this day, a Russian election interference and propaganda, not only in our country, but as Anne Applebaum has pointed out, they do this all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So do you have any other real conspiracies you'd like to add to the list, just as kind of a point of contrast? Uh, well, I'm just going to add one that fits your, your model, which is the uh, death of Julius Caesar, who was in a conspiracy. Right, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, I guess maybe that'd be the classic assassination conspiracy. Um, but, um, but, but you see, you, you've got to let your mind roam a little freer, Ari, okay? Uh, because what we're talking about here are not simply these moments, uh, these specific events. We're talking about wide-ranging, vast global conspiracies to basically take over the world. Uh, treacherous, diabolical, hidden groups, secret groups who are seeking to make the United States a province and a new world order. Uh, so we're up two or three levels from these, can I say, everyday ordinary conspiracies? Yeah. Um, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm just trying to draw and the distinction very I, carefully. I, I want to make this point here. With this. So uh, when I talk about these secret diabolical groups, those are the groups that the president of the United States, QAnon, and other conspiracy theorists point to. Uh, you know, you could say, well, the uh, caravan coming up from Latin America were either mm. a normal event of people fleeing poverty and violence to have a new life, or you could say that these were financed and paid for by George Soros, a financier, in order to disrupt the American uh, economy and also provide illegal voters for, uh, for the Democratic Party in California. Uh, so you can also see how the wider, the vaster conspiracy then pins into and, and, uh, and connects into these more ordinary and everyday events. It occurred to me that Soros seems to be the modern version of Rockefeller and Rothschild. 
He absolutely the case. And I, one of the things I want to talk about is the, uh, the, the, the theme here of Jewish cabal, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion also fit into this. And with QAnon and the idea of the sex rings and taking the, the children in order to get chemicals out of their blood will extend life, relates in my mind to the medieval issue of the blood libel uh, is another uh, thing that I mentioned earlier in terms of these old traditional ideas never seem to go away. Uh, these conspiracy theories hang on over the centuries. Even the Kennedy assassination, half of Americans in the year 2020 still believe that John Kennedy was killed in an assassination. One in five Americans still believe that 9-11 was an inside job. So these conspiracy theories do not get put to bed but rather you bring in the usual suspects from centuries ago in order to explain them. Okay. Well, that, that sets up my next question nicely because I wanted to summarize based on my reading of your book, which I thought was very enlightening. I mean, it's just a really nice way to summarize or put together the pieces of conspiracy. So I do recommend that people read it. Thank you. So based on the book though, here's how I would summarize the, the two major themes of conspiracy conspiracy imaging, conspiracy mongering, especially in America. We, meaning our, our insider group, we are the ones doing God's work and there are demonic forces opposing us and demon, literally demonic forces animating our enemies, which we see even now with QAnon. And number two, we face enemies within and without and often those enemies are in league. And so throughout history, common targets have been Jews, of course, Catholics, especially in America, where we were largely a Protestant nation, immigrants of all, all kinds, and other minorities. Now, in a way, this is not surprising because people who are fewer in number and have less political power, it's easier to pick on those people. Mm -hmm. um, so do you, but do you think that that's a fair summary of the major well, themes I, of I would add one other factor, and that okay. is the fear of the concentration of power in a central government which uh, is a fear and a concern that Americans have had going back to the colonial period and has uh, grown with the power and authority of the federal government in Washington, D.C. And what has happened basically since World War II is the idea that these diabolical groups, these uh, insiders, these conspirators have now taken control of the United States government. And you see that with the talk in the 1950s in regard to the communist conspiracy, and you see it in my mind in regard to this idea of the deep state, which again resonates with these previous ideas that we've had about uh, uh, the insiders and the, uh, the conspirators taking over. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to put this in my question list, but I wanted to, earlier I wanted to ask this. So there seems to be, so as I mentioned last time, right, I come from more of a free market libertarianish line. In fact, I interviewed David Nolan who is one of the founders of the Libertarian Party here in Colorado. And so, which this is a whole different story, right? One reason why I left the Libertarian movement and party years ago is because we had a candidate for U.S. Senate who <laughs> was deep into these conspiracy ideas. In fact, he ended up in federal prison for threatening a judge. Uh, but this is a, we don't, <laughs> people who want, who want those details can go, can go read the history. But, um, but there does seem to be, but nevertheless, I still am pretty much a free market guy. I fear concentration of federal power, but it's not because I think there's some international cabal of Jewish bankers controlling the world. I just think that power tends to corrupt. 
So I wanted to ask you about Lord, Lord Acton, who was one of the three Englishmen that Americans can quote, along with Shakespeare and John Lennon. Okay, right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you about the real difference, because somebody you don't discuss at all in your book is Friedrich Hayek. Mm -hmm. And of course, he has a book out, I think, in the 40s called Road to Serfdom. It is. So he Goldwater's all favorite books. Okay. So he also has a fear of central authority, but it's not like, oh my God, this coordinated cabal is, is ruining things, but it's more of a unintended consequences argument. Okay. It's not like people are trying, you know, there's not some grand conspiracy to do this. It's just the logic of the historical um, events, you know, one sort of set of controls leads to another, leads to another. And of course, Hayek is acting out of um, the theories of Ludwig von Mises, who has the same idea. And it's, and it's again, it's, it's more unintended consequences and just kind of the, the force of history as opposed to individual conscious actors. Well, and well, so, go ahead. Let's, let's uh, play with that a little bit. I, I, I think that's a very intellectual statement, and I think it's a very reasonable statement. But let's put that in a wider context, okay? So we look at the Constitution of the United States. Uh, we look at the Constitution of the United States and we see a checks and balances system. We see a separation of powers and we see a written bill of rights. Why are those there? Why do we have those particular devices? Why did we need to write down the bill of rights? Uh, and what I read is that people believe, as Lord Acton said, that power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. That when you give power and authority to men and women, they grow greedy for more power and greedy for more power. And they might quote William Fulbright, a senator from Arkansas in the 1960s. They develop an arrogance of power. And gradually, they nibble away and nibble away at the rights of people. And that American liberty stands and depends on vigilance, on suspiciousness, because of the natural uh, traits of human beings to seek power. I think Tom Paine and Tom Jefferson talked about this. Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan talked about this. I think that what energizes the Second Amendment movement in this country is, again, this idea of the need for vigilance, that American liberty depends on vigilance. So I understand what you're saying in regard to the natural accretions of power within government. But there's also this other heavy and deep current in American society, which, again, goes back to the colonial period, which suggests that we have to be suspicious of our leaders, of our government, because power uh, corrupts. Okay. And I think coming from this sort of more libertarian framework, I just think about things a little differently than a lot of people do. So I think Trump is a deeply dangerous president. But I've thought about that about every president in my lifetime. So, <laughs> though I re I recognize that Trump has some unique problems, right? But it's like, um, you know, I'm just generally skeptical of politicians. I just generally think that they're up to up to no good. Not as part of some grand conspiracy, just because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a well. That's that's a kind way of that. My attitude is you have to be kind of somewhat unbalanced to seek that office. Uh, with the amount of stress and angst that goes with it. And then you have to have such overweening ambition to be president of the United States. And I don't have friends like that. And I don't want friends like that. So let me say it that way. Well, let me put it out right now. <laughs> Goldberg, 2024. <laughs> 
Thank heavens that won't be the case. It might no. be Michelle Goldberg or another Goldberg, but it won't be this Goldberg. <laughs> no, I have thought about that because I know a lot of people who would make very excellent presidents. I'm not among them. I realize that, right? But I do know people who are very calm, very thoughtful, very educated, but they also have a lot of common sense and just, just, a, just and they would just be so good in the office and yet they have no interest. And if they tried, they would have no chance of winning. And it's well, kind of frustrating to me. And Ari, what you're talking about is balanced human beings who seem to have their priorities in a proper way. Uh, but what I see is to run for president, your priorities have to be completely out of whack. Family has to be second or third, spouse has to be third or fourth, and you live and breathe politics. Uh, perhaps if you had a father like John Kennedy, who just made that your ambition, your goal in life, otherwise you didn't reach his expectations. But to me, there's, I look at the presidents we've had from Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, to, uh, to uh, Bill Clinton. These are people who, concern me in regard to what they think is most important in life. Okay. Well, I want to go back to your book for a minute, just to kind of dig into, this is more of a question of motivation. And in your preface, you talk about the psychological explanation for conspiracy imaging, mm -hmm. which is basically the idea that people who deal with this sort of thing are paranoid. They have fragile self-esteem. There's something wrong with them mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Okay, so stop yeah. for one second. Okay. I'm, I'm, and I'm arguing against that. Yeah, I know. That's what, okay. yeah, that was the second part okay. of my question. Yeah, so I don't you're... want to medicalize uh, conspiracy theories. What's that? You I don't, don't want to medicalize. Oh, medicalize, okay. Conspiracy theories. So you're trying to take an historical context, an historical approach to this. And I have a line you wrote, you wrote later in the book, which is this. Conspiracy thinking is grounded in real issues of power and authority and equips groups with the will and means to contest them. So do you have something more to say about the psychological theory? And do you think there's any role for that? Or do you think it has to be purely your historical um, power dynamic interpretation of this? All, all the data I've seen first of all suggests that conspiracy theories and believing in conspiracy theories are not limited by gender, not limited by class, not limited by education, not limited by race. Okay, so those are key variables in my mind, key fault lines in American society, that conspiracy thinking transcends those ideas. I think conspiracy theories do a variety of things for the believers. I think they, they order the random, they give meaning and clarity to ambiguity. Uh, and I think in today's context, particularly, what conspiracy theories do is they validate identity and they prove identity. I look at the conspiracy theories being hatched uh, by uh, or retweeted or tweeted by the president as uh, identity creators. If you believe in this, whether it's the birth of conspiracy or the COVID conspiracy, then you are a Trumper and you are announcing your political identity. Uh, I think that's about power. Uh, I think that's about who you are. Uh, uh, but I I really shy away from the idea of Hofstadter's idea, Richard Hofstadter's idea, that there is a paranoia involved in this, a paranoia which involves uh, uh, clinical dimensions. I think I am on board with what you're saying. At the same time, I th my guess is that some people really are, whether it's due to genetics or background or personal choices and how they think, I do think some people are more predisposed to believe nonsense than others. Um, and well, what seems to correlate? 
with conspiracy theories is a decline in trust in American government and American institutions, a decline in the belief that the government or American institutions are have my best interests at heart. And that what the conspiracy theorists do in my mind is they basically create themselves as alternative authorities. The, I'm, I'm somebody you can trust. I use the expression, the Paul Revere's. We're the Paul Revere's of society who are warning the American people about the dangers. And we've got not, nothing to gain from this. All we want to do is help the American people. Uh, I think the trust that we used to have in government and all the other institutions, and I want to talk about a poll in regard to that, uh, has gradually faded, been dismissed, and has been transferred to other, other authorities, in this case, the conspiracy theorists. Okay. I definitely see what you're saying, and I agree with that. But I, I still want to kind of hold the view or push the view that um, there could be certain social environments where conspiracies spread, spread faster or slower, but they're also going to spread faster or slower among certain types of individuals. Um, so, you know, like, you can tell me, conspira- I, could, I could go in a room and listen to conspiracy theories 24 hours a day in my sleep the whole time for three months. And I would still come out and think that they're nonsense. Other people, it's like they watched that first YouTube video and it's like, oh my God, you know, this group here is doing X, Y, and Z. And now I need to watch the second YouTube video. And, you know, three weeks later, they're like so far down the rabbit hole, they're never coming back up. Yeah, but I think they, before they watch that first YouTube video, they've been conditioned by uh, the president of the United States, by Hollywood, uh, by talk radio, to believe that there are dangers lurking about and they should be suspicious and they should be vigilant. And if that YouTube video chimes with that, resonates with those basic ideas about how the society works, yeah, I think there's going to be a correlation. Uh, the fact that you don't chime with that implies to me that you probably are involved uh, in part of other circles uh, that are uh, more uh, less susceptible to that kind of thinking. But, you know, we're all in these echo chambers, okay? And I admit I'm in my own echo chamber, uh, but, and it's not a conspiracy-minded uh, 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 echo chamber. But let me just say something. I talk about the Kennedy assassination. To this day, I still have some questions about the Kennedy assassination and the explanation for the Kennedy assassination. I don't look at myself as a conspiracy theorist. I, I believe that uh, skepticism is an incredibly important piece about being an American. Mm-hmm. The question is when healthy skepticism turns into something else. Well, I have to confess that this whole business with Epstein dying yeah. in prison <laughs> while the video recording is off. It's like, come on, man. I mean, it, the, that it just seems like well, that, 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 makes, with, that, that raises the, your, that raises the hair on my neck. I have to say that goes with your list of other smaller conspiracies that you find more acceptable. Well, if they could kill Julius Caesar and Abraham Lincoln, why couldn't they kill Epstein in prison? So we won't, we won't talk about that. Um, now I'm derailed. I don't know what I was going to say. Um, so with so, that Kennedy assassination, for example, uh, yeah. you know, they were never able to duplicate the, uh, the sequence of shots that killed John Kennedy. Even army marksmen who were able to shoot off the, sh- uh, the bullets in the right amount of time could not hit a moving target. Uh, Oswald's gun was missighted. Uh, so there are a variety of questions that these people have raised, which I'm not going to say, oh my God, there's a conspiracy, but they have raised questions in my mind. And again, 
a healthy skepticism as opposed to a out and out uh, uh, disabuse of American government. Well, well, I think this seems to be another element of it. There just seem to be some people who are comfortable saying, I don't know this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't have the full answer. There are some open issues here that I, I don't know how to fill in. Um, even like evolutionary theory. I have zero doubt that evolutionary theory is correct. Can mm-hmm. I explain every, but as far as I know, there's still no good theory on how the first, mm-hmm. the first cells of life got started. Well, I think there are good theories. I don't think there's any uh, over, overwhelmingly proven theory on that, mm-hmm. but I don't doubt it. Right. And there's lots of things like there's, I can't explain the functionings of gravity to you. It doesn't really cause a problem for me, but there's just all kinds of things that I can't explain. And it is in history where we're relying on often word people's testimony and memory, which can be faulty. And just, there's simply holes in history. There's no way you can explain everything in history because you can't go back in a time machine and observe these issues, these uh, events. And there seem to be some people like me who are just comfortable saying, look, yeah, I can't explain that. It doesn't matter. You got to look at the, you know, the, the broader scope of the evidence and you can't pick on this one little tiny hole and say, oh my God, therefore this giant global cabal. Um, whereas other people seem to, seem to think that they need to explain everything. Now their explanations are nonsense often, right? But they're happier with a nonsense explanation of everything than with an explanation that doesn't nail down every single last jot of, of detail. Well, I, well, I think the, I, I, there was really good points. Uh, I think the key is planting a seed of doubt. Uh, you know, and I, I'm sure you've seen some of those uh, pseudo documentaries on the Roswell alien incident. And you watch these things and you say, you know, I'm not sure anymore. And you're not sure because they have created a drama uh, where they bring in people, normal, average people who saw something, smelt something, felt something, was told something, and they're pretty convincing. And then you have the expert who comes in and say, that's no, all nonsense. And they go right back to the, the documentaries, uh, uh, the, ca- the main characters, uh, the persona of the dramatis and the uh, character uh, in the thing. And then they always end with the questions. What really happened at Roswell? Okay. What did they find? What are they not telling us about Roswell? So there's always this doubt left. Okay. And I think most Americans are not conspiracists. Okay. Most Americans are in that outer circle of people who've heard a story or two or three or four and find it. Well, there's a question raised. Might that be convincing? but they'd sure like to find out more because that's the same government that deceived us about Iran-Contra and Iraq and about Vietnam. Why wouldn't they deceive us about this? Well, just uh, to, as a quick reference to my previous point. So talking to David Nolan, who helped found the Libertarian Party, that was a direct outgrowth of the Nixon years and that profound loss of trust in the government. And Nixon did a whole bunch of other things that free market people don't like, like with the gold and um, price controls and things like that. But yeah, I can see. So in my lifetime, right, this is like, I don't remember an era when people did trust the government. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So to me, it's like, I hear what you're saying, but to me, it's like, you have to know the history to know the decline of American trust in government. 
And you were going to mention a poll. Why don't you bring yeah, that I will. up too? And actually the poll is first was taken in 1958 and it's last been taken in 2020. And the poll asked the question, do you trust the government to do what is right all or most of the time? And in 1958, 75% of Americans said, I trust the government to do what is right all or most of the time. Now, this is in the uh, aftermath of World War II. It's in the aftermath of the Cold War. And the level of trust was incredibly high. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. And then you see this dramatic drop off through the Kennedy uh, assassination, through Operation Blue Book, through the uh, Watergate, uh, into the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, 1970s in regard to the setbacks then. In 1980, 25% of Americans, in other words, a mirror image, 25% of Americans now trust the government to do what is right all or most of the time. And there's been a several ups and downs in this, but as of 2020, we're at 17% of Americans so 83% of Americans do not trust the government to do what is right all or most of the time. So I'm, that is not simply the government. It's mirrored in universities. It's mirrored in businesses. It's mirrored in labor unions. It's mirrored in religion across the board in terms of our faith in institutions. And I think that's what's really fueling this idea about conspiracy, these ideas about conspiracy. Well, it'll be really interesting to see how the COVID pandemic feeds into those trends because on one hand we're seeing pretty dramatic failure of the federal government to get a handle on the pandemic i mean in my view the u.s government has just done an abysmal job on this i mean it, 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 in my mind it would have been better for the federal government to do nothing relative to what it has done okay so let's I mean, play it's just been so bad What's so that? let's play with this let's play with this for a little bit we have this pandemic problem and we have the president of the united states initially talking about it as being a hoax a democratic hoax to ruin his chances for election. Then we see these conspiracy theories that Fauci and Gates and a few others are involved in the vaccines, okay, and they're gonna make, a, and Soros are gonna make a fortune out of the vaccines. Then you've got the anti-vaxxers who are afraid of the vaccines. Then you have the president saying that the numbers are being inflated by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which are part of the deep state. So you have all of this rhyming together in terms of a, a real pandemic, although yesterday he said it's not as bad as the flu, okay? So I'm not even sure it's a real pandemic according to the president of the United States. So you have a variety of conspiracy theories just basically being boiled up at the same time we have this major crisis. And I think in crisis times when we're not sure what in heaven's name is going on, conspiracy theories become incredibly relevant. So, but this, is the other, but this is the other angle of it. Because the failure has been so obvious and profound, like I know somebody who died of COVID-19. A lot of Americans do, or at least they know somebody who knows somebody, right? And so it's like the damage is, is very real. It's not hypothetical. It's not future. It's not subtle. Like it's people, people are dying. And so I think a lot of people are saying, well, look, we want government to do, a good, <laughs> to do, to do its job. We want government to be functional. And so I wonder if it'll, even though we're seeing dysfunction, if it will swing the, uh, you know, move the, bend the arc, however you want to say it, toward people being, at least maybe not being more trusting, but wanting to be more trusting or developing the, wanting to support the institutions that we can trust. Well, so anyway, I, it'll, it'll know, be interesting. I, I, really, I really appreciate a cup half, uh, uh, half full interpretation. We're my, I'm a cup half empty 
kind of guy. Uh, I don't know, that's my predisposition. But what I see, and maybe you don't see this as much in Colorado, people absolutely refusing to wear masks and people shooting people who are demanding they wear masks or, or, or committing violence against people who want them to wear masks, but being proud they're not wearing masks because they believe they're standing with the president in regard to this hoax, which is the conspiracy fostered by Soros, Gates, and Fauci. Well, you so know, I had a. I, I, I go in the other direction in regard to thinking, my heavens, this is a real event. Millions of people around the world have died. 220,000 Americans have died. You can, and I know people who've gotten sick. I've not known anybody who's died, but I've known people who've gotten very, very sick. I believe it's real. Absolutely believe it's real. But I walk around Utah and I'm stunned by the people who refuse because it's their constitutional right. I'm not sure which right in the Bill of Rights that is, but constitutional right not to wear a mask. It's a government plot. The government can't make me do that, which again is filled with the corrupt who have an arrogance of power. Well, I feel like I'm a little irritated by that because I feel like I'm tightening up a lot more than I would be uh-huh. because like I won't even go to the store anymore because half the people aren't wearing their masks, even though it's they're supposed to by law here. They still don't. Or, you know, they like have them around their neck or have them like, <laughs> okay people i'll just order my food delivered um but uh oh but i tweeted the other day though you might be interested in this so yeah <laughs> it occurred to me okay so think about conservatives and you know i'm totally in this camp right on gun ownership they're yeah. so hyper vigilant about gun safety rules and if you even point an, an quote unloaded right there's no such thing as an unloaded gun if you point an unloaded gun at someone that is just like shocking how could you dare to do that and yet with the virus, it's just like, <laughs> it's like, suck it up, bro. you know, be, be a man, so, you know. Um, so it's just the, the, the double standards and the partisanship there is just so blindingly apparent to me. It just is, I guess it's surprising to me that people aren't more self-reflective about that sort of thing. Well, and that goes to, in my mind, with what conspiracy theories do, which they provide an identity. They provide a grouping. It's a, you're a member of a you're a Trumper, okay? It's a true cross of Trumperism, if you will. But the belief in conspiracies puts you in a particular group where you can identify, you can Facebook, you can do whatever you like with, as you count your guns with whoever you like uh, to count your guns with. But it, it gives you an identity, it gives you, a, gives you some meaning, it gives you some power, and I think that's what's key here. Well, this in-group, out-group mentality seems to be pretty fundamental to human development I mean, long development, deep development and human history, like written history. It just seems to be the, the major recurring theme. It's like, here's my group and we're good. We're the good guys. And there's your group and you're the enemies. And that just takes so many different manifestations. Well, and think about QAnon with that, which is you're in a group, a minority, but you're in a group of people who have the real facts. You're on the inside. You've got a guy, a Q patriot, who's supposedly at the highest levels, intelligence and security, and in Trump's inner circle. And Trump is feeding this information and he's giving you clues and crumbs and posts in regard to the secrets, okay? So you're in on the secret. Now that's a lot of power. And your role is either to figure out what the crumbs mean or to disseminate what other people have told you the crumbs mean to the vast audience on Facebook at least until yesterday, okay? so this, I mean, this is a, a place of, you're a patriot, okay? You're a patriot who's standing for the children against the Satanists, against, you know, 
all the deep staters and the Soroses of the world. That, that is some identity that you've been able to cultivate and to uh, possess. So for listeners, just recently, Facebook announced that they would try to purge Facebook of QAnon accounts. But I, I actually pulled up Wikipedia's page on QAnon, and here's how they begin. Here's their summary. QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global child sex trafficking ring is plotting against President Donald Trump, who is battling against the cabal, and that Trump is planning a day of reckoning known as The Storm, in which thousands of members of the cabal will be arrested. And so, as we... There's a line in there that says there is no evidence for this, <laughs> if I recall. In the Wikipedia. Yeah, right. As the Pizzagate guy uh, quickly <laughs> found out as he was being arrested. <laughs> um, but this but seems remember, to... Remember, after the Great Storm comes the Great Awakening. Okay, which I didn't know that part the, of it. Okay. okay, after the Great Storm comes the Great Awakening, which so fits a Christian, uh, uh, a Christian end of times uh, thought and theology, which is that uh, in the fight between good and evil, the United States will come back to the Constitution and God led by Donald Trump. There's no mothership in this one though, right? No, the mothership is actually um, black Muslims. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, incidentally, that's, I, I didn't know anything about that. So I found that bit in your book really fascinating, but people can read that for, for that. Um, but, but just to go, go into the QAnon just for another minute. So this, once I read your book, it's obvious that they're drawing on some very old conspiracy lines with, as we've said, child abuse, taking children's blood, um, in this case, the sexual scandals. And, if, and something we didn't talk about and you don't talk about in your book is, I don't, I don't remember what year this was, but there was this great scandal about how childcare centers were sources of these. Uh, it was the 1990s. Okay. So thinking of doing a chapter on that and then discarded the idea. But there was uh, oh, interesting. cases okay. in Utah, for example, and in California. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was big. And, okay. So there's this also history of these conspiracies of child abuse. Now, of course, that's not to say there's no such thing as child abuse. There certainly is. That's horrible. But there's also these really wild conspiracies about things that are happening, which aren't actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this, these old strains, the strains of Satanism, the forces of Satan, which here they apparently really believe this. And then, of course, the enemies in the heart of the federal government with the deep state here. Mm -hmm. And so since we're talking about it, did you have anything else to say about how they're, they're weaving together these very old strains of conspiracy thinking with current events? Yeah, and that's one of my concerns. So I, but I, before I say anything about that, I want to add, which is how the QAnon people are able to expand their own community by dealing with, well, we're all fighting against child abuse, and we're all fighting against child sex rings. We're all fighting against pornography, and pornography is a danger to society. Uh, we uh, are upset about vaccine and the, the anti-vaxxers. So you can see how this community, this QAnon community, is starting to envelop more. Uh, more groups and people who have legitimate concerns and legitimate issues. But again, I see QAnon as plugging into the past in terms of the blood libel, in terms of the, the uh, uh, with Soros, uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, with the Rothschild conspiracy, the Rockefeller conspiracy, because of the global bankers, the Pope is involved here with all the anti-Catholic conspiracy stuff as well, that this stuff is out there, it's been normalized, it's been legitimized by a variety of peoples. And again, you simply have to sound the dog whistle. You don't have to go into point by point by point. You don't have to prove that Pope Francis was in this place or that place. You simply have to say the Pope. 
You simply have to say the Rothschilds. You simply have to say the New World Order. And those tweets, if you will, those tweets are enough to imprint and get people to act. And well, it's concerning to me that these people are not simply on the, on the internet anymore. There's a, uh, a junior high school about a half a mile from where I live, and there was a giant queue burnt into the lawn. And uh, you, know, you see there the QAnon shirts, the QAnon signs at the rallies. He says, oh, and I, I don't know a lot about these people, but I know they love their country. Uh, he's retweeted uh, QAnon uh, tweets 200 times. Uh, 29 candidates running for office have Q flirted with QAnon. And then this poll, which really disturbed me, was that one third of, of, of uh, Republicans, one third of Republicans believe there's a law, uh, that there's a lot of positive things to say about QAnon, that they believe most of the things, and another quarter believe some of the things. So over 50% of Republicans have at least a tolerance of QAnon philosophy and QAnon theology. I did not know most of those factoids, so those were concerning. Well, I another one of those, which is 25% of Republicans believe that the United States government should shut down, shut down New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN. And these are things that are, I find deeply disturbing for people who believe in their First Amendment or Second Amendment rights uh, uh, about wearing masks and what have you. Uh, so it's my rights are sacrosanct, but yours are not. Well, and that's where this does start to bump up against um, mm -hmm. historical lines of fascism. I mean, when you have the government shutting down newspapers, you are barreling toward a fascist society at that point. So that is, that's another very peculiar thing about this we've conspiracy. Taken toward that, Ari. We've taken a step toward that this is all fake news, that you can't trust these people, that they are the enemies of the people. And this, again, goes with the demonization and delegitimization of people. You're not just disagree with me. You're not just wrong. You're subversive. You're a conspirator. You're a Satanist. You're corrupt. You know, lock them up. Lock them up. And that's what the, uh, this great storm is supposed to be. The arrest of 100,000 Satanists, minions, deep staters, or whatever, in the United States. That's supposed to be, the last I heard from QAnon was that that's why Trump went into the hospital, because they were going to do it right then, because uh, he was going to absent himself and organize and engineer the entire arrest, uh, arrest uh, event. Uh, I also heard just once he wins re-election, that's when the, uh, the, the storm is going to occur. So how you fit the present into your, your theories is, again, working from the premise of conspiracy. If you believe a conspiracy exists, it's amazing how many bits of information you're going to be able to find that fit the conspiracy, that push the conspiracy, that move it down the field. Well, and as I mentioned previously, it, it, there are some really dangerous ways in which the conspiracy theorists are creating the exact harms that they're warning people against. And we talked about that even with the KKK in Colorado in the 1920s. It's like they're talking about law and order and sending out these vigilantes to rough people up. It's like, law, hello, law and order, maybe not send out vigilantes to, to hurt people or not kidnap people, you know. And, and uh, with the, these armed groups uh, at the, the racial justice demonstrations, for people to be dressed up to the up to the neck in regards to body armor, have automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons. Uh, this is this is the America we've come to. You know, we are a country armed to the teeth, in a situation where we don't trust our neighbors, don't trust our leaders. And I, you know, again, I'm sorry, I'm a cup half empty kind of person. 
I really worry about where this is going, whether who regardless of who wins in November. Okay. Well, let's, let's bring that up in a few minutes, but I wanted to get, I wanted to set sort of a broader context point here because one thing your book makes clear is that conspiracy thinking is very old and not only in America, but previously, and you don't really deal with pre pre founding of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly this, the stuff about these conspiracies about the Jewish cabals goes back centuries. Um, The, conspiracies involving Catholics and reverse about the Protestants. And that goes back clear to the Reformation. Right. And, you know, and with Gutenberg and the rise of the printing press, there was anybody could go print a book up and print a thousand copies and spread it around Europe and cause these fires. And so you seem to think that conspiracy, this conspiracy thinking is especially bad here and especially bad now. And I think that there are, good reasons to think that it's bad here and now but given that it's conspiracy thinking is so old and so widespread in a way you can read your book in one of two ways it's like oh my god we should be terrified now or oh this is just part of the same trend lines that have been going on for centuries and i'm trying to sort of draw the line as to where how we should approach that um so you know, in a way, are, so I guess the question is, are you making too much of conspiracy theories here and now, given the deep and long traditions of conspiracy thinking in human history? Uh, first of all, let me say that if I looked at the most conspiratorial societies in world history, I would look to Nazi Germany in the 1930s and Soviet, Soviet Union in the 1930s and 1940s, which I think was the leaf motif of those societies was conspiracy thinking. Um, if I looked around the world today, I'd probably stick in the Middle East in regard to conspiracy theories and what's going on. Uh, but that doesn't absolve us of the concerns that I have. And those are concerns I had in 2001 when I wrote that book. Those concerns have doubled and tripled since then. Part of it is the dissemination factor. In the old days, you would write a book, you'd get it printed, and you'd publish it, and people would read a book or they'd watch a video, or, or Robert Welsh or the John Birch Society would do two-day symposiums to explain the conspiracy. Now, the click of a mouse, and you entered the world of conspiracy thinking. Uh, you just turn on Facebook, or look at Twitter, or look at Instagram, or look at YouTube, and you can watch conspiracies or read about conspiracies the day, all the, the day long. Uh, so, that concerns me. The legitimization of conspiracy thinking by the, the conspiracist in chief in the White House is very concerning to me because here you have a major authority figure who has used conspiracy theories like no other president has before. And let me add a third piece of this, which is what has been called the outrage industry or the amen corner, where you have what the president says constantly backed up by his surrogates. Uh, Sean Hannity, uh, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, uh, Lou Dobbs, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, uh, uh, go to Congress and they look at Tom Cotton and look at Devin Nunes, uh, Kevin McCarthy, and you get all of these voices. So what concerns me even more than it did in 2001 when I wrote that book was that the power of conspiracy thinking has increased, it's become more legitimate, it's become more verbalized and vocalized, such that 
where it used to be on the fringes, and we talked earlier about the fringes of conspiracy and what kind of people believe in this stuff. I think this is now mainstream thought. I thought it was mainstream thought in 2001. I am absolutely convinced this is how the mainstream goes. We don't pass a day anymore without some sort of conspiracy theory being hatched about everything under the sun. So you're absolutely right. It goes back before we got off the boat in 1607 and 1619. Anti-Catholicism, fear of witches, anti-Semitic stuff is way old. But look how this has gotten more powerful in terms of a global network, at least an American network for sure, and how I think it's really destabilizing how we even understand the news and understand what's a fact and what isn't a fact. Okay, I have no response to that. Those are so, those are, that's kind of depressing. Uh, let's dig back into Trump for a minute. So the, the, the thing that is most surprising to me is that Ted Cruz, Donald Trump says Ted Cruz's father was somehow involved in assassinating JFK. Donald Trump calls Ted Cruz's wife, I don't know what it was, fat or ugly or something ugly, along those lines. <laughs> and here's Ted Cruz just totally bending the knee for Trump. And I'm like, do you have no self-respect, Ted? Come on. Um, but in addition to, so he's, he was championing the birther conspiracies about Barack Obama, which more recently, there's even been a set of birther conspiracies about Kamala Harris. Those, those right. don't seem to have taken off as much. Um, there was the JFK deal. If you, of course, he's demonized immigrants, as you said, the immigrant um, chain, whatever they call that. He's, as you mentioned, cast doubt on the election process preemptively. Harry, do you remember the first election he cast doubt on? It what do was you mean? Ted, Ted Cruz victory in Iowa in 2016. Oh, I don't even remember that. Trump, I, did, I don't Trump, think I noticed that. Trump said that he had won that election and it was it's been fixed. And that's why Cruz had won the uh, Iowa primary. No, I don't think I ever saw that. Okay. And then, of course, as you mentioned, he said some positive things about QAnon. He always has this double speak. Well, I don't know these people, but they're great people. <laughs> so, something like along those lines. Um, so here's what I looked up your 2017 op-ed, which is you have an occasional column, apparently, in the Salt Lake paper. And you said, President Donald Trump stokes the fires of conspiracy to insist that the danger lies within in the very institutions that ensure the life of our republic. I guess we've maybe already said as much as we need to on this. Do you have any additional thoughts about Trump and the particular dangers that he causes? And as we were saying, we mentioned before the show, right? It's like if Hillary had won that election, we wouldn't be talking. The national discussion would be very different today than what it has been. And I don't think, Q, obviously, QAnon in particular wouldn't have exploded because that's a Trump-dependent conspiracy theory. But arguably, the whole line of conspiracism would not have been inflamed as it has been. So how much is Trump just an aberration and how much is he a harbinger? Well, first of all, uh, I'm very good at predicting the past but not predicting the future. Uh, and what-if questions have always given me you know, headaches. But I remember when Barack Obama was president and we had the birth of conspiracy. And then because of his executive orders, he was talked about uh, trying to aggregate power to himself and that he was destroying the, the uh, constitutional mandate as president. Then we had the Benghazi incident, which also was seen as a conspiracy. So I think this conspiracy has become a lifeblood. Okay, The fact that Hillary Clinton would have won, I don't think that would have been a factor necessarily in this, especially if, and I believe this, Conspiracy thinking has become a glue, an important glue in regard to understanding Donald Trump's supporters. You know, it's ever since 2001, 
America has lived, if you will, in a uh, surveillance state, a security state, where we've been hypervigilant. And we feel that we were, we've been besieged, we've been attacked, uh, we've been betrayed. And I think that current is what is filtering and supporting and inflaming, if you will, this conspiracy thinking. And if Hillary Clinton had won, I think we would have seen, again, this greater glue on the part of Trump supporters or Republicans in regard to pushing this, uh, their agenda. I'm not sure it would have necessarily been, Trump would have been a, a moment, the, the, I'm gonna be awful, but the latest con man in American politics who eventually, like Joseph McCarthy, saw through and then we went on our merry way and completely forgot about it. Uh, I look at Trump and uh, I'm concerned that uh, it's not the party of Cruz, it's not the party of Bush, it's not the party of the other 12 people who stood on that stage. These are Trumpers and uh, the never Trumpers have been discarded. And this is a party that has, has dramatically changed. And I think this also relates to religion. I think evangelicals, I think it relates to race in regard to uh, uh, Caucasians. Uh, but I think this is a real glue that has allowed the Trumpers to um, identify and, and, and bolster their support. There's a strange way that you could read your book. Um, so the book is, is about people who see these grand cabals that are trying to take over and destroy the world. But in a way, there's a way that you're saying something similar, not about a cabal, but it's more of a, what I was saying of a unintended consequences chain of historical events where it's, it's not a coordinated. I mean, in some cases it is like the people behind the Q conspiracy is a conspiracy, right? I mean, we, I don't know who, I don't think anybody knows who the main person and behind Q is, but I think the idea is it's several people who are putting out these messages. Well, that is a conspiracy. We don't know the details of it, at least I don't, but there is a, a mini conspiracy there to put out this information. Well, they they believe wait, or not. they're not, they're not, they're not violating the law. Right. Okay. Legal definition. Okay, yeah. So it's not a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy theory that they're probably. Well, well, let me say, let me, let me distinguish here. Okay. So yeah. And you talk about this in the book, there's a criminal conspiracy, which is prosecutors can put you in jail for yeah. you know like you you get like you hire a hit a hit person to kill somebody right. okay Consp criminal conspiracy well, think about doing that yeah. so but there's a broader sense i think in which we can say at least i want to say that there can be a conspiracy to do something that's bad or nefarious it doesn't necessarily break the law okay like and so if we if we have that broader sense then i would say the people behind q are perpetrating a conspiracy or the people behind Trump's campaign. I, have you seen that documentary on Netflix about uh, um, Alex Jones and Roger Stone? I think it's called Get Roger, Get Roger Stone or something like that. I did. And so arguably there is sort of a conspiracy to elect Donald Trump. Uh, you, you can just call that a campaign too, right? It's not necessarily hidden, right? It's kind of out there. the beholder, right. Um, and so like the Russians, they're not even trying to be subtle. It's not like a hidden conspiracy. They're just manipulating elections. They're totally, they're pretty open about it. They're somewhat secretive about it. Um, but there's this strange sense in which you're saying, well, look, all these people who are con concocting all these bizarre conspiracies are themselves, they're the problem, right? They're the ones ruining the world. Like there really is a problem. They're it. And so there's this deeper sense in which there really can be things that go wrong. There really can be bad actors, but the bad actors are the conspiracy mongers in a strange sense. And so the problem is them. 
do you think that's a, but maybe I'm trying no, guess, to go too bad on you. But. I guess my sense, the real problem is the loss of faith in American institutions. Okay. Yeah. Which allows this kind of thought to promulgate and okay. to be cultivated. I think that's the problem. I think people who believe this are wrongheaded. I don't think they're sick. I think they're wrongheaded. And I think that they have lost in this 21st century, the, the moorings in regard to what American citizenship is about. Uh, that is my concern. Uh, so my, my sense of what to do about this is to, you know, my first remedy is that political leaders, religious leaders, business leaders speak out against these false facts and this, 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 these falsehoods that are occurring and those things that destroy the legitimacy of our institutions. Uh, that's my first step. My second step is individuals need to write letters to the editor, write, appear on blogs and whatever, and talk about the problems that this society is having. I think these people are wrongheaded. I don't think they're evil. I don't think that they uh, uh, need to be locked up or anything like that. But I think that they need to basically understand what is important in this society and what will allow this society to last another 200 years. And I agree. I obviously I'm totally on board with that. Maybe we should get into. I'm. I don't know how much time you have. You have another article <laughs> called about bystanders during yeah. the Nazi era, right? And this is one of the themes in your book about the Klan in Colorado, mm -hmm. which really struck me. The places where the newspapers and the intellectuals strongly stood up against the Klan they were largely successful and they were often able to beat back the Klan. And that, that did strike me. And so I do think that there, people have a responsibility to not just go along to get along, not just peddle in this nonsense just to be an insider, but to actually think about, well, what's actually true here? What, what stories are true? What stories are just conspiracy mongering and creating problems? Um, do you want to say anything about that bystander work or is that too far afield I, for our present discussion? Well, that's, it's, it's something that's, uh, it's not my academic interest, but it was, it's very much of a personal interest. But I do want to go back to the Klan for just a moment. What was a key variable in regard to those people who opposed the Klan is if you were Catholic and Jewish and black and opposed the Klan, the great majority of people couldn't have cared less. It was only when white Christians opposed the Klan that that had an impact. And that, to me, was a positive thing, but also something that said a great deal about the, the racism and, and, uh, and uh, hatred of minorities in this country, and this in, in Colorado as well, that you needed people who looked like you, who talked like you, to make the point, as opposed to listening to what the, the pain of minorities. And I think it's a problem we still have today. Okay. I want to I ask one more question about motives. Some people seem to believe what they're selling. Some people, it's questionable. So just to mention a few figures that you discuss in your book, there's Pat Robertson, the evangelical uh, TV evangelist, Louis Farrakhan, who took over Nation of Islam. And again, you have a book, you have a chapter about that in your book. More recently, Alex Jones, who I mentioned, they each work with some really bizarre ideas. And we could add to the list, uh, the leader of the Klan in Colorado in the 20s, John Galen Locke, who you indicate maybe it wasn't as ideological, it was more in it for the power. So there seems to be a mix of true belief, a desire to manipulate others, and 
just a side note, this idea that the ends justifies the means seems to be pretty central to this, right? It's like, this is helping our side. So it's good if people believe this, even if it's total nonsense, which is really scary to me. And then third, simply a personal desire for wealth and power and prestige. Do you think that, is it just a matter of the individual as to which of those is dominant or how do you see those interplaying typically? Well, first of all, that's a really, really good question. And it's one that is, I've thought about a great deal. I'm not sure I have a great answer for it. Uh, I found a spectrum of people, as you just suggested, a spectrum of people who were out and out believers that UFOs were real. And it was clear to me in going through these and in regard to the Kennedy assassination that America had lost a great opportunity to be a better country with the assassination of John Kennedy. And this was really a plot within the government and absolutely sincere in that. And then I go, I mean, then from that side of the spectrum to those who were pandering, okay, if it wasn't the Kennedy assassination they were selling, they were selling the UFO conspiracy. If it wasn't the UFO conspiracy, it was the, uh, the uh, uh, Catholic conspiracy. So there were people who, and I use the expression entrepreneurs, so, and I, they were in it because, hey, this was their bread and butter. This is how they made money, which was by selling books and selling audio tapes. And I got that, okay? And some of these people, there was a, 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 this idea that I know the truth, if only I can get the truth out. So I think there's a spectrum of people, okay? And that's in that inner core of believers. What I'm most concerned about is the people who aren't necessarily doing the research, okay? Aren't really looking at the, the evidence, but are three or four levels from them who are heard something, okay? Saw a commercial, uh, watched a YouTube video, who then ascribe to these beliefs, okay? So it's, I, again, I think there are levels of belief and levels of, of, of involvement in these, in these different conspiracies. Okay. And just to reiterate a point that you made, there seems to be a vicious cycle between a collapse of institutions or a distrust in institutions anyway, and then conspiracy theories, which then generate the conditions in which the institutions are dysfunctional. Yeah. So then we distrust the institutions. So then there's, and this seems to be, I'm very much con, you know, cognizant of that as a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that leads to the question, you know, we've talked a little bit about how to fix it. To me, the key answer is to stress the sci scientific mindset like here's how evidence really works. Here's how you test a hypothesis, whether it's an historical one or some natural science proposition. You know, here's, you have to look at the scope of evidence. You have to integrate all the evidence. You can't just fixate on one little issue that maybe you can't explain very well. You have to put that in the context of everything else that's going on. Um, just a general culture of reason and rationality and the enlightenment scientific mindset would be mm -hmm. that's to me the kind of the core issue um and, and and that goes along and i think that's a really good point and that goes along with me saying we need the leaders of this society so yesterday four members of the american agents uh community came out and talked about the uh the security of our election system and said, you should have faith in the security of the election system. You should have faith in putting your ballot in that your ballot won't. Uh, that was important. We need scientists who come out and say, no, this is what we look for in regard to a virus. This is what we look for in regard to a virus. You have religious leaders. In other words, 
having as many voices of people, again, calling them gatekeepers, many people who are able to say, here's what we need to focus on in this society. Here are the institutions you should trust and can trust. Here are my words that I want you to put into the mix. And I think that's what's important here because at this point, uh, experts, leaders, uh, qualified individuals are just being discarded or everybody's opinion is same value. And I think this is one of the issues of the internet. Uh, everybody's opinion is the same. Everybody uh, has the right to say their opinion and it has the same weight. And I don't think that's the way this society or any society can run. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I mean, we, there's any one of your chapters we could go into for hours. Um, well, thank you. I mean, we, we barely even talk, we, we barely even mentioned some of the content in your book, but at a certain point, I mean, I think people have to, if they're really interested in the conspiracy history, um, you can just dig into it as much as you want. So let me give you the last word um, to wrap up and summarize the theme. Oh, and let me, let me first of all, just say, thank you for doing your work on the issue. I think that that's important. Um, hopefully, even though your book is now a few years old, people will look it up because it really is, I found it extremely eye-opening with respect to events going on today in our culture. So hopefully the work that you're doing and that other people in that field are doing is part of the answer. Um, so thank you for that. So let me, let me leave, leave you with, the, uh, with your final thoughts. Okay. Um, I want to emphasize that conspiracy thinking is not harmless, that it's not something knowing how deeply rooted it is in American society and American culture and American values. It simply just won't go away. And I really believe that we need to awaken to the concerns. And I, I want to emphasize what I've said previously in our conversation, that these concerns are about our community, our living together as a people. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of things in American history that keep us together, except the fact that we have a common history. We have a common story to tell. And if that story gets so riddled and becomes unbelievable or considered false, then we are in trouble as a people. And that goes back to my comment about American institutions, whether it's governments or universities or uh, medical care or legal care or what have you. If we don't trust these institutions, if we don't trust the values we have, then we're not gonna last as a country. And I don't wanna again be alarmist because I think we're going to survive this. But it reminds me of the 1850s, when conspiracy thinking was rampant in American society, where uh, South, South and North only saw themselves in conspiratorial terms. And if we divide into tribes like we have, then I'm, I'm, I'm worried about where, where, what world my grandchildren will live in. Okay. This has been the Self and Society podcast with guest Robert Allen Goldberg. He's the author of Enemies Within, book that I hope that people will pick up and read. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Ari, thank you so much. It was, again, absolute pleasure. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you being on.